hear what's going on. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know about you, but for me, this study has been thrilling. Uh, I feel like to, to come up and preach this sermon week after week, to preach Jesus' sermon, um, I, I can't do it service. I can't do it justice. I'm, I'm trying to communicate something that's so massive and important and life-changing and humbling, and I can barely get the tip of the iceberg. I encourage if you're getting something out of this, keep going back to the Sermon on the Mount yourself and study through these statements of the Beatitudes yourself. You'll be enriched for sure. We've talked for a few weeks now. We've been over a month in this sermon, and now we're coming to the fourth Beatitude, which is in verse 6. And I'm going to read it, and we're going to dive in, and we're going to explain it and apply it to our lives. In verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied, they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, if you've been paying attention to the progress of the Beatitudes, you've seen that each one is kind of like a building block. And the foundation is laid in the first one where he says that the poor in spirit are those who will be blessed. And then he goes from there that the poor in spirit are those who mourn. It's not that you are poor in spirit one week and the next week you have to mourn and the week after that you're meek. Each one of these leads into the next and builds upon it to bring us further into what it means to be a Christian. Think of it like this. This has been a helpful analogy for me, and as I'm trying to apply this to my own life, think of it like this, that Jesus is a doctor. He's actually described as the great physician, but think of him like this. You've been to a doctor, maybe you've been recently, and what happens at a doctor is you'll come in, and one of the first things that doctor will begin to do is ask you questions. He'll ask you, how are you feeling lately? Uh, how, how's your breathing? Have you had any trouble breathing? Uh, you have to answer that question. Have you felt nauseous? Or They'll ask a bunch of questions. And what is that doctor trying to do in asking all those questions? Well, that doctor wants to know if you're healthy. He's trying to get the condition of your physical body. And if he can ask the right questions, he can analyze your body and he can determine its health. And so fix whatever issue if your body has an ailment. Woo. We're able to deal with it. I have no mic up here, Al, so we don't need to try to fix anything. <laughs> Thanks. Thank yeah, I took it off. I mean, you're working hard back there, but it's going to be to no avail because I took it off. Um, but keep trying. I mean, it might, might something. Addressing the problem by asking you questions. Now, if you think of Jesus... Think of him as the great physician analyzing you, but he's not analyzing your body, he's analyzing your soul. Okay? He's trying to see, or he's trying to help you see, rather, if you have the symptoms of salvation. If you are one of the people of God. And he begins by declaring who are the people of God. And the first is, are you poor in spirit? So imagine you're in Jesus' office and he's asking you questions. He's, he's taking uh, your soul and he's looking at it. And his first question is this, is, are you poor in spirit? When you evaluate yourself, would you say, I have nothing, I'm bankrupt, I, I've come to the conclusion about myself that I have nothing to offer God, I have nothing to offer people outside of whatever God has enabled me to do, I in and of myself have nothing to commend myself, I can't bank on anything in myself, I see myself as lower than everyone else in the room because I'm poor, it's my self-evaluation. Jesus is asking you, this is the first question as he diagnoses your soul, is to say, how do you view yourself? Are you poor in spirit? And then he says, maybe you answer that and you say, yeah, well, maybe I think I am. I don't, I don't assert myself too much. I might try not to think too highly. He goes, okay, let me ask you another question. Do you mourn? Do you mourn over your sin? Does that matter to you? Jesus is asking, do you mourn over the brokenness of this world? Do you mourn over the brokenness of the people around you? It grieves you that sin destroys lives. But most of all, when you evaluate your own poverty of spirit, does, does it bring you 
to grief? That you recognize God standards up here and you've been able to only do this and does that cause you to grieve? Do you mourn? Jesus might ask you, when was the last time you wept over your sin? He's not done. I mean, Jesus is not satisfied with any shallow answers. And so he keeps asking and, and getting to the heart of true faith in Christianity. And he asks another question, well, are you meek? Blessed are those who are meek. That means you've entrusted yourself to God, you've submitted yourself to Him, and then when you look horizontally at people, you look at everyone with a sense of humility, that, that I will humble myself to God, I will see myself as lower than everyone else, so that when I look at people, I look up to them, I treat them with dignity and respect, because I am nothing, I have nothing to offer, I'm unwilling to defend myself, because I don't see myself as having anything to be defended. I'm willing to prefer others in love. I'm willing to even be defrauded if necessary so as to help others. And so he's analyzing you by these beatitudes. And now imagine Jesus takes that stethoscope, he holds it up to your chest, and he goes, all right, I want to look at your heart. I want to look at your heart now. We've looked at how you consider yourself in your mind and your, your emotions and how you feel about your sin and, and even your relationships. Are you meek? And he's all right. Now I want you to think about your own heart, which is to say he's now even getting right to the center of what it means to be a Christian. Because now he's talking in verse 6 about what do you hunger for? What are you thirsting for in your life? And I'm going to give you six keys to understand this statement. Six keys. Key number one, Jesus is addressing your heart's desires. Jesus is addressing your heart's desires. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Hunger is a kind of desire. Thirst is a kind of desire. Christianity is all about your heart. And Jesus is beginning to help you see what you treasure most in your life. What do you value most? What is your treasure? What do you delight in? What is it that you're longing for? What is your desire? What is your hunger? What is your thirst? He's not mainly talking about your habits or even your external behaviors. That's not mainly what he's addressing in this statement. He addresses that in other places. But here, he wants you not to look at your disciplines, but your delights. He doesn't want you to look at your habits, but your hungers. He's asking you, he's drilling in now, going deeper into this idea of what do you hunger for most in life? What do you desire? What do you thirst for? And Jesus is saying here, the people who know their God are the people whose primary preoccupying desire is righteousness. See, this is our second key. First key is, he's talking about your heart. He's talking about your desires. He's talking about your delights. He's talking about your longings. He's talking about what inner ache you have for what you want most in life. What are you trying to get out of life? What do you want? And the second key is this, that every heart hungers. You have to understand this. Every heart hungers. It's not that Christians hunger and, and those who are not Christians don't hunger. No, everyone's hungering. I've heard it said that human beings are bubbling cauldrons of desire that you can't turn off. I had a professor in college say, human beings are desire machines with no off switch. We're always desiring, we're always craving, we're always hungering. The difference then between a believer and an unbeliever is not do you desire something, it's what do you desire. You following me? It's not do you have a hunger in your soul, it's what are you hungering for. In 2 Corinthians, we kind of mentioned this last week, that Paul writes that the unbelievers has his mind blinded by Satan so that they're unable to see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Now, I don't know about you. If you ever known a blind person, they're not aching to see the next sunrise or commenting on how beautiful the rainbow is. Why? Because they've never seen it before. 
They don't have a desire to go get up early and look at the sunrise because they've never seen a sunrise. And this is what Paul would say about the unbeliever. They have no hunger for God. They have no hunger for righteousness. Why? They're blind. Of course they don't have a desire for that. They can't see it. They can't understand it. Now, that doesn't mean they've stopped hungering. Of course they still hunger because everybody hungers. Everybody thirsts. Everybody has a craving. But the unbelieving mind, blinded to the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, since they can't desire God and his righteousness, they desire other things. They're groping through this world, hoping to find something that will satisfy, and they will go from pleasure to amusement to entertainment to achievement, trying to find that thing that satisfies the craving, but they will not stop looking, or they will not find it because they will not find it except in Christ. And we read it this morning. This is the problem of the world, Isaiah 55, 2. God is speaking to Israel. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Isn't that the plight of fallen humanity? A constant searching, a constant ache, longing for something that does not fill the belly, that does not satisfy the soul. Maybe you've had a friend in your life, maybe a family member that you know, someone very close to you, and they are always jumping from one pursuit to the next, one job to the next, looking for that next thing that's going to be their next high or their next goal or their next achievement. And you say, why can't they just get settled? And this is the reason, because they have a heart that was made to crave, that was made to hunger, but they're finding these things that only satisfy them for a little bit. They labor for that which is not bread. They work for that which does not satisfy. And so they're constantly, continually unable to turn off those desires, but those desires are never satisfied. It's the plight of sinful man. Jeremiah develops this even further in Jeremiah chapter 2. Listen to this. God is speaking to his people who have completely and repeatedly and continually abandoned his laws and commandments. And God says through Jeremiah, he, he says, Be appalled, O heavens. God is speaking to the heavenly host. It's like he's speaking all the angels. God's saying, angels, I want you to see something that's appalling. I want you to see something that's utterly shocking. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. You say, what is he talking about that's so dramatically shocking? And he says, here, here it is. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, evil number one, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is saying, here's Here's what should shock the universe is that the almighty, omnipotent God who overflows with goodness and grace and kindness and blessing to his people who is the fountain of living water. He makes himself available to people and the people see that and they go, oh, now I got a better idea. And they build these cisterns. They dig these holes and they work really hard and they trade a mountain stream of cold, satisfying water for the Sahara Desert sand, stuffing it in their mouth as if it's going to satisfy and it only increases their thirst. That's the world. And so every heart is hungering. Every heart that's outside of God, outside of a relationship with him, is turning from it. And so the main difference when you consider what's the difference between us and the world, sometimes externally we can look very similar in terms of things we do. We work maybe a, a job with a bunch of other believers and if someone were to walk into your workplace, they might not see that much difference in terms of how you pound the nail or how you sell the product. Uh, but, but what fundamentally, what fundamentally is the difference is the hunger of the heart. The desire of the Christian is fundamentally different from the desire of the unbeliever. Because the Christian hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Now, if we want to have a church that's faithful in, in raising up more people to understand Christ's call in their lives, to understand the great glorious gospel and, and all that it means and to be actually fully transformed by this, 
We need to make sure we don't want to do what the Pharisees did. You guys all know the, the big sin of the Pharisees was that they stopped looking at their hearts. They stopped asking that question, what do I hunger for? And they began more focusing on what? Their externals, their laws, their rules. They weren't thinking about the inward inclinations of their heart. They were thinking about the rules. They didn't hunger and thirst for righteousness. They hungered and thirst for religion, maybe. Position, maybe. Power, maybe. Achievement, maybe. But not righteousness. And if we want to be a church that really deals with people at the core of who they are and thus make sure our kids don't grow up to be little Pharisees, we need to make sure that we often talk about the inclination of the human heart. I have been in churches long enough. I grew up in churches and I grew up in a Christian school and I've been in these institutions long enough to know that they're filled with false converts who don't really think about the issues of the heart. It's, really, it's a really sad thing that we see this all the time that somebody, because at some point in their life, prayed a prayer or at a Christian event, raised their hand to receive the Lord or checked a box or walked an aisle. I've been to all the summer camps where the kids will do all this stuff and they'll go through something and they'll agree with the right doctrines. Is God real? Yeah, of course he's real. Am I a sinner? Of course I'm a sinner. Did Jesus die for my sins? Yeah, I believe that. Is he alive right now? Yeah, I believe that. But if you were to ask them about their heart, and if you were to examine the hunger of their heart, you would find that they're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They've maybe taken an external approach to Christianity only. And they have the same belief as the demons have. James says that even the demons believe. Demons have fine doctrine. But there's all throughout the scriptures this idea that it's possible to have all the information without any transformation. All the information without any transformation. Think of Judas, who followed Jesus for three years and on the outside looked as if he was one of the twelve. And when it became less advantageous to follow that guy Jesus around, he booked it. Think of those crowds in John chapter 6. They were ready to follow Jesus when they were getting their fill of food, when Jesus was multiplying the loaves and the bread. They were happy to follow Jesus. Hey, they even wanted to crown him king. But as soon as Jesus started speaking hard sayings and calling them to forsake everything and follow him, they left him. What's funny, what's interesting, is that in John chapter 6, those people are actually described as believing in him. That word belief is actually used, but we know by the context it was a false belief. It wasn't a saving belief. It was something external where they wanted something, they hungered for something, but what they were hungering for was just food. It wasn't righteousness. They didn't really want Jesus. They didn't really want his salvation. I've grown up with these people close to me, my very own family, who went to church all their lives, and then at one point in their life, they decided it wasn't advantageous anymore. They didn't want Jesus anymore, and so they abandoned the faith. For so long to them, it had been just a facade. It had been something solely external. I, I like to call these types of people man-made Christians. Because they're not God's work. They're not God's divine miracles. That's what a Christian is. It's when God makes a Christian. But there are people who, by maybe they convince themselves, maybe they've been convinced by other people that they're saved. Nothing has changed in their heart. Nothing has changed in their hungers. Nothing has changed in their desires. But they have maybe raised the hand, checked the box, walked the aisle, something along those lines, and now they think they're saved. People are telling them they're saved. Maybe they even got in church, and so they look saved. But at the core of who they are, it was not salvation that God has wrought on their soul. It was not the uh, divine grace changing them from the inside out. It was something else. And so we move to the third key to understand what Jesus is saying here. His third key is this. Christians are recreated with a new hunger. It's not merely a decision, though a decision will be made. It's not merely raising a hand or praying a prayer, although those, those usually and sometimes happen when someone's getting saved. Fundamentally, when one is made a Christian, they're made a Christian by God, by divine grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. 
For we are his workmanship, listen to this word, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That means we were natural people walking along in our natural state without grace and without the gospel. And at some point, by divine power, God recreates us in his image in union with Christ so that we then believe and are saved. It's the act of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So the fundamental nature of a Christian is someone God has recreated, God has remade, or you would know from Jesus' language in John chapter 3, in his interaction with Nicodemus, he told him, you must be what? Born again. It's not that you raised a hand. It's not that you prayed a prayer. It's not that you walked an aisle. It's not that you checked a box. Fundamentally, Christians are those who were created afresh, created anew, given the new birth by God. And God, in his divine, sovereign, miracle grace, said, come alive, and you came alive. There's a, I'm reading through Charles Spurgeon's two-volume, massive uh, autobiography. Me and my daughter Emma are having a contest to see who's going to read more books by the end of this year. And she's going to dominate me because the book I chose happens to be like 900 pages. So I'll finish one book and she has finished 30 already. So I mean, I'm getting killed here. But in this book, there's a section where he's describing his life and his conversion. And he's looking back and he's trying to think, what, what was it that brought me to Christ? What was it, the defining moment? And he goes, well... I came to God in salvation because I wanted to. But then this thought flashes before his mind. He goes, well, why did I want to? Where did the want come from? He goes, it was God. Well, well I prayed, though. I, I, pray, I prayed. I prayed to God that he would save me. That's why I got saved. And then he, the thought flashes before his mind. Well, what provoked him to pray? It was God. Well, well, I read God's word, and that's how I knew that I should pray, that I should call. I read it, and the scripture said, well, why did you read it? it was, God gave me this desire. In every angle, he looks, he goes, I can't escape this reality that the reason I became a Christian is because God called me. It wasn't that I did anything. It wasn't that I earned it. It wasn't that I thought it through and I was smarter than everyone else who hasn't become a Christian yet. And that's how I became a Christian. No, God created me. God remade me. God recreated me. I want to prove that this is how God works. Go to Ezekiel 36. Because the prophets looked forward to a day of the, when the new covenant would come. Now we live in the new covenant. But in Ezekiel's time, they, they didn't have a full and complete picture of the new covenant, but they got glimpses of it in various places. And in Ezekiel chapter 36, if you start in verse 25, Ezekiel is prophesying about a day when Israel gets saved. Now, by the grace of God, we are not Israel. It's the same new covenant that's promised here. So this applies to us as well. Follow me in verse 25. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And listen to this. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be, okay, and be careful to obey my rules. Let's pause there. This is Ezekiel's description of what happens when someone gets saved. Well, who does it? Verse 26. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. I will remove the stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I, who's doing the work here? This is fully, completely, and totally an act of God. That God removes the dead heart of the unbeliever, replaces it with a living heart that is filled with His Spirit so that that heart wants righteousness. Think of it this way. Let me illustrate this. It might help bring this picture uh, and land this idea in your minds. Any of you into art? Well, maybe you might go to a gallery. You might look around. And you might find certain pieces that particularly strike you. 
And maybe you particularly like a Rembrandt, let's say. And so you want to go and you want to see the various paintings that Rembrandt has painting, painted. And so you go to this place and you're looking around and you notice there's something that's unique about every Rembrandt that all of them, like in the corner, have his little signature. And then you notice that this is a kind of common thing. You want to see a Picasso and a Picasso has in the corner, there's a little initial in every single one of them. And often the way you know if something's legitimate, if it's a real original from the artist, you've got to look and analyze the signature. Is it really their signature? Is it really their mark? Consider this, believers, here, here's a good illustration. Is that when God creates a masterpiece by the miracle of divine grace and he calls you from darkness into light and he gives you a, a new heart, you know what's written on every heart? You know what that signature is that God puts on every single one of the creations that he makes? Here it is. It's a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. How do you know you've been born again and you are right with God? Here's one way. Is you can look at your soul and you can ask it, what do you hunger for? Do I have this mark on my soul that I hunger for righteousness? See, it's not just, it's coming to Christ isn't merely believing in the supernatural, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You must do that. That's important. That's indeed central. But it's not merely believing that those things happened. Again, I said it before, the demons believe that. But the question is, has the supernatural happened in you? Where you go from loving the things of the world and eating things that cannot satisfy to craving righteousness, desiring the good food of God's word so you can live in conformity to his will. I had a friend, and he's still my friend, spent time with him this week. Uh, we, he had grown up in, in church all his life. His parents had brought him to church all his life. He grew up attending services, had no rebellious stage, just kind of went and listened and listened. He's a good guy, hardworking, honest. And he started attending our small group back, back in, in our church in Simi. And one night we, we decided to ask the question as a good discussion question for our small group. And the question was, what's the least you have to know to be saved. Just threw it out there. And we, have a pretty, we had a pretty good group, and everyone could kind of pitch in, and, and this person's sharing about, we've got to understand the holiness of God. And, and this person's talking about, well, we've also got to understand the depths of our own sin. And this person's talking about how, well, no, you also have to understand what Christ has done in his death and burial, his resurrection. You've got to understand these things. And over here, my friend's sitting there. He's not saying anything. And as the whole night goes on, I notice he doesn't make a peep. And at the end of the night comes, oh, it comes, comes to a close. He comes up to me and he goes, Eric, I've never heard this in my life. I've never heard any of this. I gotta go tell my brother. I go, man, you've been attending church all your life. You've never heard the gospel? This is, the, this is how people get saved from their sins. This is what churches are meant to proclaim. You never heard this? He goes, I've never heard this before. Well, he keeps attending our group. A few months later, we're discussing a passage in Jeremiah 31, again, about the new covenant. And it says this, I'll just, I'll read it for you, I have it written down. It says, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, listen to this, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And we're discussing how when God saves someone, he gives them the law on their hearts so that they have a new desire to walk in obedience to the law. And he's sitting there, my friend, listening to us describe this. And finally, he pipes up and he goes, guys, this has only recently just happened to me. He said, all my life, I thought I was a Christian because I went to church, because I attended the classes. I even volunteered to serve. I was a good kid. But all I was ever told was, God loves me. God loves me. God loves me. That's all I was ever told. And I hear then the stuff about the holiness of God and, and I hear about the, my own sin and what Christ has done. I've never experienced it, but I, I can't say I've ever had. All of a sudden, I have this insatiable desire to learn about Jesus. I, I want to read his word. I want to obey him. I want to show up to church. And I go, brother, I think you've been born again. 
All his life, he was a man-made Christian. He was one who would have checked the box, Christian. He would have claimed it, but he didn't know the real article. Why? What changed? Well, God's working of divine grace opened his eyes to see the glory of the gospel of Christ. And once you see the glory of the gospel of Christ, let me tell you, let me guarantee this, you will hunger for it. You will want it because the Holy Spirit will give you a new heart and the Spirit will be in you and you will be compelled. Your own desires will be changed. So you will want to follow after this Jesus whom you now love, who you now consider your Savior, whom you now also not only consider your Lord, your Savior, but also your treasure. This is the birthmark on every Christian. How do you know you've been born again? You hunger and you thirst, not for the things of the world, but for righteousness. Here's the fourth key to understanding what he's saying here. This is, this is the fourth key. The Christian's new hunger is intense. Now, in my family, we have dessert almost every dinner. Compliments of Miss Ashley Derso there in the back. We almost always have a dessert. And it's funny to me that my daughters will say, how and declare as they're eating their meal how full they are how absolutely full they are that they can't possibly take another bite of the meal that Ashley's made but as soon as dessert comes out what do they do come on they're ready to eat again and they're ready to ask for seconds when it comes to that cookie or that pie or that cake or that cupcake they want more now, I'm describing the Christian's new hunger for righteousness, and I'm going to say it's not like my daughter's. <laughs> it's not like, yeah, I'm mostly full, but I'll add a little cherry on top. It's actually not that at all. The same word for this hungering is found in the previous chapter in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is brought out by the devil to be tempted. You remember this? And it says, I think one of the biggest understatements in the entire Bible, it says he didn't eat for 40 days and for 40 nights. And then Matthew says, and he was hungry. That's all you're going to say? Famished at least? I mean, you're going to starving? No, he just says hungry. Well, this is the same word that Jesus is using when he's talking about how you hunger and you thirst for righteousness, which is to say it's an intense hunger. And the word thirst is indicating a strong thirst. What a metaphor. I mean, we don't really get this. Yesterday, I was working in my house. We're laying floors and 12 o'clock rolls around, which is when I'm used to eating my lunch. And there was no lunch. And I didn't get to eat until one. Poor me. When mom brought a Subway sandwich, I devoured that thing because I had to wait an entire hour without my food that I'm used to eating at that time. We don't really understand what it means to hunger. Maybe you do. Maybe you lived in a time or a situation. I don't know what it's like to hunger. In, in, in these days, uh, the Jews would have been raised on stories about hunger and thirst. They would have been raised on stories from the Old Testament of the Jews wandering through the desert and being thirsty for water. They would have known a little bit more than we do that what it means to hunger and what it means to thirst. See, modern Americans, we, we're hungry because it's one o'clock and, a, and, and we usually eat at noon. I mean, no, we don't really get this. But this is describing an intensity of the hunger, an intensity of the desire, that intensity that's so strong there's an ache. He's saying there is a righteousness that's out there that the Christian hungers for so deeply, so strongly, that it creates a kind of agony within the Christian, a kind of heartache that I want it so badly. I want it so badly to be righteous. I want so badly to walk in accordance with the Word of God that He's revealed to me. I want to be right with God. I want to enjoy the fellowship with my Maker. There's an ache. And so here's what He's saying, is that we, if we've been born again, what it means to be saved is that God has given you an intense longing for righteousness. There's an intensity. I read a a description of an army that was in battle and the people that they were fighting were were in retreat mode and they're backing away and they're backing away and the army is pursuing and the army is pursuing and this this army in retreat mode is backing eventually they back to a city that has water now this army in in advance mode 
had advanced so far that it left its water behind. The camels that were carrying the water through the desert were left behind. And this army was marching forward on the attack, but they were marching through the desert in the scorching blaze of the sun. There was no water for them. They were intense in their pursuit of the enemy, and they had completely left behind them any water. They knew that the place where they were driving their enemy had wells where they would be able to drink. One of the guys later who had lived through this particular battle wrote this. He said, our, he our heads ached. Our eyes became bloodshot and dim in the blinding glare. Our tongues began to swell. Our lips turned a purplish black and began to burst. He goes on to describe how people were dropping left and right and they couldn't get it back up and that people just needed to keep advancing. The army just had to keep pressing forward. They knew that even though the enemy was ahead of them, there would also be water and they needed to fight and they needed to advance. And the only way they would be able to get their water if they kept fighting, if they kept moving forward, they'd eventually get to a place where they could drink. They were literally fighting for their lives and they were so thirsty, they were obsessed with the idea of water. The desperation was so strong and so palpable, they would do anything to get that drink. Eventually, they fought that enemy back. They got to the place where the wells were. It took four hours for all of them to get a drink. When they were finished, the man in charge of that particular army said this. Making an observation, he said, I believe that we all learned our first real Bible lesson today. We learned our first Bible lesson on that march from Beersheba to the Sherei Wells. If such were our thirst for God, for righteousness, for His will in our life, a consuming, all-embracing, preoccupying desire, how rich in the fruit of the Spirit we would be. Isn't that true? That if our own lives were characterized by this all-encompassing, almost obsession to be like Christ, to live according to His will, to follow Him closely, how, how alive and vibrant would our lives be? And this is the intensity that Jesus is describing. This, this intense fight for righteousness to advance, to become more like Jesus. This intensity is born out of a complete and utter desperation. That I know, if I don't get this righteousness, I, I, I'm going to die of thirst. If I don't become more like Jesus, it's going to kill me. It's going to make me agonize on the inside out. I, I meet with people in ministry a lot who come and they want to confess a, a sin. They want to get over some trial, some inward turmoil. And it's interesting that sometimes as we talk, it becomes clear that there's deeper issues in that person's heart deeper sin issues that they've been holding on to and those begin to get uncovered and we begin to see those things and it's almost like these people they, they want their their symptom dealt with they want me to fix their problem but as soon as we start talking about the deeper issues they don't want to have anything said to them it's like a cancer patient walking in and says i, I got cancer it's all throughout my body could you give me a tylenol doesn't deal with the issue and sometimes people they're hurting with their sin but they're not really desperate enough to forsake it you guys know the prodigal son story right that jesus told in luke chapter 15 when the prodigal son was hungry he looked at the pig's food and it wasn't until he was on the brink of utter starvation that he began to think about his father we ought to think of ourselves as being so poor, so desperate, so thirsty, so hungry, that if we don't get what Christ has offered, we will die, we will be lost, we will be confused, we will be distracted. We need Christ, and there's a desperation, an obsession, a preoccupation with being more like Christ. This becomes the reorienting feature of our lives. Everything revolves around this. This is the sun in our universe, all revolving around bringing Christ glory by living according to the righteousness He has called us to. And let me ask you, at the core of your being, the core, be honest with yourself. What do you want? 
in life? What do you want most? What are you hungering for? Thirsting for? The fifth key is that this hunger includes a hatred. Because if you love righteousness, you're going to hate those hindrances that get in the way. You're going to hate your sin. One of the ways to know if you've been born again is not only do you hunger for righteousness, but do you despise and loathe the sin that lingers, the pollution of sin that's still in your heart. One time a a cocky young man came up to a preacher and he came up and he's kind of kind of trying to trick the preacher and he comes up and he says, all right, you say that the, the unbelieving person has a weight of sin on their shoulders. And kind of to poke at that preacher, kind of begins to mock him a little bit. What's it weigh? 10 pounds? 20 pounds? 30 pounds? 50 pounds? 100 pounds? How heavy is this weight that you're talking about? <coughs> preacher thinks about it. He says, all right, let me ask you a question. If I took 400 pound weight and I put it on a corpse... If I were to put all this weight on a corpse, would the corpse feel it? The young man says, of course not. It's dead. It's a corpse. It can't feel it. It wouldn't feel anything. The preacher looked at that young man in the eye and he says, listen, the person who doesn't know Christ is just as dead as that corpse. And though the weight of sin is great, though the weight of sin is a giant burden, the person who's still in their sins feels none of it. And this is the call in our lives. Is he says, hunger for righteousness. This is what the mark of a true believer is. And part of that hungering is we hate our sin. We're hypersensitive to sin. We want all the righteousness there is that a human being can have. We want to not settle for anything. We're not okay with just external forms of righteousness. We're not, we're not okay with just being a nice neighbor, a good coworker, a good friend. We want our thoughts to be conformed, our feelings to be conformed, our motivations to be conformed, our deepest attitudes, our moods, all to be conformed to righteousness. And we wake up every morning going, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I hate my sin. Jesus isn't merely interested in our conformity to outward rules. Jesus' question to us this morning is this, yeah, okay, you, you, we all look good, but do you delight in me? Do you love me? Do you hunger for me? Do you thirst for me? I know you follow the rules, but do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? See, there's, there's lots of sins in the world. You can name all kinds of sins, sins of lying, sin of deception, sins of adultery, sin of murder. You can go through and name all of them. I'll name a worse one. Here's the worst sin. It's the smug self-satisfaction. The smug self-satisfaction that feels no need, that feels no hunger, that feels no thirst. You say, how is that worse than all these other sins? Here it is. If you're a liar, you can see you're lying and you can repent. If you're a murderer, you can see your murder, you can repent of your murder. If you've been living a life of sin that's overt and external, you can look at those things and you could see them and you could be objectively evaluated by those things and you could see them and repent. But there's a different sin. It's a more dangerous sin. It's a sin that doesn't do any of those things. It's a sin that looks at oneself and senses nothing but satisfaction in who I am. The smug self-satisfaction that sees no need for Christ. Blind to your own spiritual poverty, missing the very first beatitude. Jesus would say of these people in Revelation 3, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This isn't something that we evaluate in our own hearts as we look at who we are and what we long for. We have to make sure that we are not those people who just evaluate ourselves in terms of the externals. I don't say any bad words. I don't go to the bad places. I don't look at the bad things. All those things I don't do anymore. Look at your heart. Look at what you hunger for. Look at what you hunger for. Here's the last key. Your hunger will be satisfied. Your hunger will be 
satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they shall be satisfied. That hungering, thirsting person marching through the desert, that's a picture of who we are right now. We want righteousness. We want the righteousness of Christ in our lives. We want to be more like him. Well, here's the promise. You will be satisfied one day. In this Bible, I have not many of the Beatitudes underlined, but I do have this one underlined. And I think it goes back to when I was a young man. I was beginning to really be, follow the Lord and really try to, to walk in, in obedience to him. And, and it was like a kid trying to stand up under a wave on the beach. And just every time I felt like I could stand up, I just get crushed down again, crushed down again. And I began to realize that the call that Christ put on my life is so utterly beyond me. And every time I began to walk in obedience, I'd just be smashed and I was being confronted by my own sin. I, I can't do what I'm, I'm supposed to do. I can't feel what I'm supposed to feel. All this talk about rejoicing in the Lord. I'm not rejoicing. Delight yourself in the Lord. I don't delight in Him. I delight in sin. And I remember feeling this over and over again in my own heart. All that I'm supposed to hunger for, I don't feel like I have it. And then this verse came to me and it was so sweet. So precious a promise that it was something like a life preserver that I held on to with strong grip because I knew that if this is true, I can hang on. That if I hunger and thirst, because I know, I know I'm not, I don't have it. I know I don't have the righteousness, but I do have hunger for it. I have a thirst. And if I'm hungering and thirsting, then one day I'll be satisfied. Maybe you are right now in one of the positions mentioned here, maybe you're the self-satisfied. You evaluate yourself and you go, I'm pretty good actually. I don't need a savior. Maybe you're, like I just described, you're, you're being crushed under the weight of your own sin and your own guilt and you're tempted to fall under those waves of hopelessness and despair and sink. Maybe some of you are here and you've been walking with Christ for a while or you've, you've known the gospel, but you still feel a soul hunger. And nothing seems to be satisfying. And you go from this to that to this to that. You're longing for something. The grass is always greener wherever you look. And for whatever category you're in, the morning, this morning, Jesus invites you and he's to himself. He goes, come to me. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Rest for your soul. He stands up and he says, I am the bread of life. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Here's the beautiful truth of this promise is that you will be satisfied in three ways. There will be an immediate satisfaction because the moment you believe the righteousness of Christ is credited to you as if it's yours. The moment you believe you are given a satisfying righteousness, you don't need to work for it. Just start thanking God that it's available. Believe it's yours. That he died for you. He lives right now. He's alive again. He freely offers righteousness to all who believe. Objectively justifies those who trust him. So there's that first immediate satisfaction. But then, you guys know this, if you've been walking with the Lord, there's a growing satisfaction. I don't know about you, but if you've walked with the Lord, do you ever feel fully and completely satisfied where you felt like, I don't need to grow anymore? Uh, we, we feel this desire, even all throughout the Bible, the saints say things like, as the deer pants for water, my soul thirsts for you. I seek you, I thirst for you, my flesh faints for you. This is the people of God, even though we know God, we seek it. In life, in this life, is a continually thirsting and being filled and being hungry and being filled and we thirst for more righteousness and Christ assures us and, and it's like the two strokes of a swimmer. We're hungering but he's satisfying us and we're hungering and he's satisfying and this is how we move forward in the Christian life. And so there's a growing confidence and satisfaction in Christ but there's a third way that he satisfies us and this we have not yet experienced church. This is the greatest of all. This is the final perfect satisfaction we get one day in heaven when we fly away 
and we're no longer in this life and the war in our hearts is over and no longer do we feel the pull of sin tempting us into wickedness or evil. No longer will we have to worry about how our sins are dragging us away from the Lord. Our selfishness will be gone. Our pride will be gone. We will be fully and completely what Christ wants us to be. And won't that church be glorious? Won't that be amazing? The bullets of this world will stop flying and there will be peace and serene and calm forever. Ours is the comfort. Ours is the kingdom. Ours is the whole world. Ours is the satisfaction. This is all ours. Blessed are those who hunger now and thirst now for righteousness. It's all ours. What a beautiful and happy comfort. It causes us to live with joy now. We'll finish with this statement. As the great physician has analyzed our hearts, and he's asked us to really see, have we been born again so that we have this new heart that longs, hungers for, thirsts for righteousness? Have we been born again? Is the Spirit that way in us? Are we being lulled to sleep so we're not hungering anymore? He's asking us these questions. And the question, or the quote I want to leave you with is this. Lloyd-Jones says, I do not know of a better test. Follow me. I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole manner of the Christian profession than a verse like this. Here it is. If this verse to you is one of the most blessed statements in all of Scripture, then you can be quite certain that you are a Christian. And if it is not, then you had better go back and examine the foundations. Let's pray. And so, Lord, even hearing this preached from my own lips and being reminded of this truth, I feel woefully short of the standard. I feel that I hunger, but I don't hunger enough desire you but not enough I long for you but not enough and I think this is all our hearts feelings now Lord that we hunger but we want to hunger more we delight in you but we know our delight it does not correspond to your greatness so we want to delight in you more so Lord we go back to the beginning and we say we're poor we can't do this we can't rejoice as we ought we can't hunger as we ought we can't want you like we're supposed to want you and so we say we're poor Lord help give us this hunger increase our hearts give us a vision of the beauty of your righteousness that we might be those who never stop hungering and thirsting until that day you call us home we pray these things in Jesus name Amen